Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here. My name is Lori Duncan. Um, Jason asked me to come speak this morning a little bit on grief and loss. Uh, so I'm excited to be here with you guys. I mean, that sounds a little funny. I was going to say I was happy to be here, but we're talking about grief and loss. So I uh, figured that wouldn't be the best thing to say. So we're having issues. My computer doesn't have the right output for the projector screen. So my lovely slides will be in miniature for you today. So, um, so before we get started, let's go ahead and pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are present to us every second of every day. This place is yours. This time is yours. Thank you for inviting us here to spend time with you discussing this subject. And Father, I ask that you would quicken your word, illumine your word, that our eyes may see, our ears may hear, our hearts may grasp the truth of who you are in the midst of the dailiness of life, of the joys of life, and in the grief that comes in, with life. So we thank you again for being here. We pray that this time would honor you and help each person in this room walk away a little bit more full of yourself. Father, we leave these things with you in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So, uh, was anybody in here last week? Last week? Okay. Uh, Bemney spoke last week. If y'all don't know him, I don't even ask me to try to say his last name. I don't know. Um, but he has ground to speak from the perspective of loss. He lost uh, his wife after a couple of years of marriage, and he walked through a very healthy grief process. And so, um, Brian, did you listen to the podcast? Did it pick him up very well? Okay, okay. It might be a little soft, but if, uh, as far as volume goes, but it's, it's well worth a listen because um, he had a real healthy approach. That's not the approach you're going to get from me uh, for years. I was pathological in trying to deal with grieving and loss and so uh, can now come from a different perspective after God worked on me and did some growth and healing just a few years ago when I was 13. Don't let the hair fool you. So let's go over a couple of his points before I start with what I'm going to say. Uh, he made the point that in this life, loss is our constant companion. We experience all kinds of losses from small ones, like even graduating middle school, graduating high school, where there's a transition and where we have lost the way of life that we knew. Um, even if it's a good thing, even if it's a healthy thing, it still is a change and a loss. So loss is always with us, and there are many types of it. He made an excellent point saying that it's not facing the reality of loss that is the real enemy, not the loss itself. We all experience loss, so it's when we try to deny it and we won't face it. That's the real enemy that we face. And yeah, yeah, I lived, camped there for a while, so I understand that. He used the uh, model of spiritual growth of orientation, disorientation, 
and a reorientation. We all come into life however we've grown, however we've been raised, with a certain orientation to how we view life, how life is supposed to work, how we were supposed to be in the world. And then loss typically causes a very large disorientation. And so in that time, everything's up in the air. Our faith is up and down, and we don't know what's right, and we don't know what's true about God. But eventually, there comes a place of reorientation where we now are kind of settled again, reoriented in the world, and it's, it's definitely a process of growth. But that, that's a model that he used. Another thing he said is that loss isn't fair. Loss and grief are not fair. That good people can suffer loss after loss after loss without any apparent reason why. While there are bad people, you know, just have no integrity or whatever, whose lives go by fairly easily. They get all the promotions, they get all the raises, they're never held accountable for actions, that kind of thing. We live in a world that uh, is messed up, shall we say, and because of that, sometimes that's the way it works out. Loss isn't fair. The good that come from a loss, he said this too, the good can, that can come from a loss is not because of the loss. And I really liked that point. And he said that Joseph didn't thank his brothers for selling him into slavery, but the loss that happened in Joseph's life, God still used for good. But it's not because he was sold into slavery. So that's an important distinction to make. And then this, this is pretty much a direct quote from what he said, what Bemney said. Grief will not be denied it will find a way out. And so it's better to actively engage in it, engage in the process of grieving, engage in the process of um, integrating loss, than to stuff it or deny it and then have it find other ways to express itself, like anger or depression or worst case, suicide, because it has not been dealt with. But it will not be denied, it will find a way out. So, on to what I'm going to say today. I wanted to talk a little bit about why suffering and loss and grieving can be so difficult. So, I hope you can see that. Uh, we live in a culture. Everybody does. And like fish that swim in the same water they poop in, we sometimes are swimming in a culture without recognizing how the culture is influencing us. They're sort of like glasses. If you wear glasses all the time, there's this framework that you become blind to. And so that's what culture can do to, to us. And so our Western American 21st century culture worships winning. It worships youth. It worships health. All these things that are the exact antithesis of loss. It worships gain and success and more. And so even when we take active measures to try to live counter to that message that's counter to the gospel, we still are influenced by it, even if we don't know it. You know, the latest little iPhone catches our eye, or ooh, that's a cute pair of shoes or something, you know, it's, we, we're in our culture. And so it colors our view of everything. And then what's worse, I think, is that Christian culture can be the same way. 
except now we have the added internalization that God looks down on it in approval, okay? This is the, the broadest swath of Christianity in America. It, most people are walking by it. It must be true, and God must be happy with it. And so here we are still swimming in the same water that we poop in <laughs> and sometimes don't recognize what we're assimilating from the Christian culture that also might not be healthy and also might be colored by the culture at large. So, I don't know y'all's spiritual backgrounds. Oh, I'm from Texas, so y'all will hear y'all a lot. Um, hook them. That's for Brian. Um, but I grew up in a theological structure, sort of word of faith driven, where if you pray with enough faith, every prayer will be answered in the way that you present it to God. And uh, that to me is some of the poop in the water. It's just not a healthy theological structure. And so, can, can y'all see this sculpture at all? I posed for that back in the day. That's me. <laughs> just kidding. But I love the idea that it portrays Christ, we're victorious in every way. We hold a big enough cross in your face and everything has to back down. No loss, no grief, no other structure except victory in Jesus. And there's a measure of truth to that, but not the way it was presented to me anyway. So if I had enough faith, there would be no pain. There would be no suffering. There would be no grieving. And ultimately, with enough faith, there's no loss. Because even if someone, when people pass away, someone close to you passes away, no matter the tragedy of the circumstances or the normalcy of the circumstances, it's not loss, right? We go have a celebration of life. We'll see them again with enough faith. And so we want to keep down any negative emotions. Again, our culture is all about happy, you know, being positive, positive thinking, all of that stuff. And a lot of times in Christian culture, that can be the way it is too. Um, think on these things that are good and pure and noble and all of that. And yes, there, that also is true. But as we've been learning going through the Psalms, there's a huge place for lament. There's a huge place for expressing grief within the context of faith. And so for, again, for me, uh, and I'm thinking probably for some of y'all, it has been spoken, look at the bright side, have faith, look at the silver lining, confess joy, that kind of thing. I know a gentleman who uh, was brought up in a way, you choose what you're going to feel, and today we're all going to choose to feel happy. And so no one had room or space to process or deal or express even if they were going through something difficult. There was just no room. You keep it down in the name of Jesus. And so that's not healthy. It's only people, the message is, it's only people without faith who struggle. So then you keep it even more buried because in your Christian community, you don't want to come across as the one who doesn't have faith. So you can have the worst tragic kind of loss, like if a child were to pass, or like with Bemnia, sudden 
brutal, tragic, nonsensical death of a spouse. And yet, our culture, because we don't like death or loss, within a week, how are you doing? Oh, you're not okay yet? And so people don't want to have that put on them in addition to the grief they're already carrying, so it gets stuffed. Does that make sense? Yeah, and again, grief will not be denied. It will find its way out. And so we're just set up. It's just a bad, bad, bad cycle. And just along these lines, I was taught in John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, I was taught that he cried in that scene and that it says that he was like moved in spirit. I can't remember the exact language, but I I was taught that he did that because of the unbelief of all the people around, that he was grieved at their unbelief that he had come to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's not why he cried. I'll just give you a hint. So we'll circle back about and talk about that in a minute. But this is the foundational theology I took into my own suffering and grief. And not surprisingly, it didn't do me much good. And that's why it was a pathological route for me for so long. So I'm going to give you, you poor ladies, I don't know how many times you've heard this, but I'm going to give you a flyover, a quick flyover of my story, just a little bit. So I was born in Texas in 1962. I'll do the math for you. I'm 55. I'll be 56 this year. I expect gifts in August. I'm registered Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm just kidding. So um, it was an American Christian family in the sense that it was Texas. It was 1962. Everybody was a Christian, but we weren't active Christians. Um, I did grow up with an awareness of God, but no relationship. So at the age of 21, in the University of Texas, Austin, Texas, Hook'em Horns, um, God found me. And so that's when I began my relationship. That was 1983. So let's see. I got married in 1987. Early in 1987, late in 1987, I had my first kid. You can count. Um, In 1990, I had my second child. In 92, I had my third. We also moved three or four times in that period of time. Uh, Somewhere in there, I found out that my ex, now ex, um, had a sexual addiction. So we spent years going to therapy and pastors and blah, blah, this and that. Um, Let's see. So in the midst of all of that, in 1993, uh, my father died unexpectedly. He had a surgery, but he was expected to recover. He passed away on August 4th, 1993. And on August 8th, 1993, my mother-in-law was hit and killed by a drunk driver on her way home from taking care of my kids for my dad's funeral. So four days, four days in between. That That was a tough time. So less than a year later, in June of 94, my mother died. And... 1996, I separated from my now ex because of his addiction. The divorce was final in 97, so that's a rough decade. (laughs) A lot of loss. And then, let's see, in the year 2000, things kind of switched. I will say this, after my divorce in particular, but throughout most of that time, I had a pretty darn good support system. So I will say that even though those years were difficult, 
presence matters. People's presence in my life helped me get through all of that. So that is a point that I think is necessary to keep in mind. Human presence matters. Awareness of God's presence also matters when we're dealing and trying to move through, in a healthy way, loss. Does that make sense? So um, in the year 2000, the small church I was going to had a new pastor come in, his family, and uh, I'm slightly musical. Drums are my first and favorite instrument, believe it or not. Um, and I was pulled out from behind the drums to play guitar and sing, which, trust me, every American Idol contestant is so safe from my singing. Um, that to me actually was, was quite a loss, having to give up the drums and do that. But, so, that was, that was a switch. And then, the way things were there, because of my own personal brokenness, and my own personal wounding and losses that I had experienced, you know, family of origin, way back, deep stuff. The next 12 years or so in that church were exceedingly painful for me personally because of my own issues. And so all of that stuff that had happened in the previous decade, as painful as that was, that seemed like the issues of life, you know, people making bad choices or whatever. But that 12, 10 or 12 years in that church that was painful for me, that felt like God was doing it to me. So in this other thing, it felt like God was with me, even though it was awful. But in this spiritual context, it felt like God was doing it to me. And that was, that was really difficult. That was really painful. I had a lot of grief over that. And so, yeah, and that's where I had this really pathological way of trying to deal with it because of the messages I'd been given about faith. If I pray enough, this won't hurt anymore, was basically the unspoken message that I had gotten. And so you just keep your head down and you keep going because that's all you know to do. And that's kind of what you've been taught and told to do. And that's, remember God hovering over the dirty fish? That, that seemed to be the way God wanted it. And so it was rough. It was rough. So that church eventually um, kind of shut its doors, morphed, and uh, my kids were grown and gone. So then I had to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up and uh, decided to go back to school. Ended up at Denver Seminary um, where God met me and did some really big stuff. And so this is where my view of how to view pain and loss and grief changed. So I'm going to give you that story. In the summer of 2015, I was in really bad shape. All of this stuff had kind of culminated and was, I mean, I was in it in that summer. And there was a certain, shall we say, theological system that we were studying that was totally disrupting my whole view of everything. And so, uh, but I was in the program and I'm also one of those ones, oh, I have an assignment, oh, I will do this assignment. <laughs> I will engage it, I will do it, and I'll try to do it well. And so a lot of what I had to do in the program I was in was reflection type work. 
inward type work, which I'd never had permission to do before. It was always God and somebody else, and you just kind of ignore your own feelings, and you serve, and you give, and you just keep going. So now I'm having to do these reflection papers and these reflection exercises and these kind of contemplative ways of sitting and being with God. And so as a a result of being steeped in that a little bit and also doing the deal, I was engaging in the journey for like the first time other than having... How, how, life wasn't living me in that time. I was actually living life. I was engaging in it, even though it was painful and messy. But again, have, having been given permission to look inward for the first time. So as I was doing that, there was this one day when I had this encounter. So I don't know how y'all feel about, I don't know, visions. I, it, what, I don't know what to call it. But it was an experience, an imaginative experience led by God. You'll have to stick with me because it's a little strange. Not Ezekiel strange, you know, there were no wheels within wheels, but it was a little strange. So, I mean, I'm sitting in my chair, but this, as I'm praying and talking to God, and yeah, just not in good shape, this is what I saw. I was taken into a, a series of caves, okay, like a spelunking or caving tour or whatever. And as strange as it sounds, that theological system that was so messing with me was my tour guide as I'm taking these tours of these caves. And so I get led into one cave, and it was was pitch black. You couldn't see anything but two or three feet in front of you. Pitch black. But you can just tell it was huge. It was a huge cavern. It was an expansive space. And I thought, well, I can't see anything in here. I'll leave. So when I turned to leave, my tour guide had left, nowhere in sight. But over the the opening of this cave, it's like a glass partition had come down, like thick, bulletproof, non-breakable glass. And so part of me is like, ha-ha, very funny, let me out. And then this is where it gets really weird, not that it hasn't been weird. But I heard this sound behind me, and I knew bad James Bond movie, but that the floor of the cave was separating. Okay, I hope you're hanging with me. So now I'm standing at this entrance of this cave that I can't get out, and this floor is separating, and I know that I'm going to fall eventually. I'm going to fall in whatever this is because I can't see anything. So I start pounding on this glass, saying, let me out, let me out. (laughs) And emotionally, as this is happening, everything I needed to live was on the other side of that glass. I don't know how to explain it. My kids were on the other side. God seemed like he was on the other side. A right theological understanding to engage God was on the other side. Everything I needed to survive, emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever, was on the other side of that glass. And so I'm pounding. I'm panicked. Even as I'm sitting in my chair, I'm panicking. Because if I don't get out, I'm going to die. And I don't know how long, either in that picture or, you know, how long I was sitting in my chair in my living room, I don't know how long it was that I was pounding on the glass, panicking, screaming, somebody let me out, let me out, let me out. And there came this moment when I knew, okay, I'm not going to get out of here. I'm just not. And so I dropped my hands and I turned around 
I looked in this pitch black and the floor, whatever that sound would be. And I said, okay, God, where are you in here? Because I know you're in here with me. And in that moment, nothing and yet everything changed because the floor was still opening, the cave was still pitch black. It wasn't like an hallelujah chorus and lights and angels. No, it was still pitch black. None of the circumstances changed. But all of a sudden I thought, I don't know what's under this floor. Maybe it's a one foot drop. Maybe it's Narnia. I don't know. All I know is that whatever it is, you will be with me. And we hear those words, oh, God is with you, God is with you. But for the first time in my 30-something year walk with God, is like, with me became a whole new, different thing, a whole new, different level that if I fell and continued falling for eternity, it wouldn't matter because I'd be falling in God. God would be with me. And so that changed my outlook on everything in life. It's not that loss doesn't hurt, but having the awareness of the with-me-ness of God is, is what made all the difference to me. And it, that whole revelation freed me from believing the lie that pain meant that God was against me basically, that pain was always a consequence of not having enough faith, that loss was always a consequence of not pleasing God. So I was freed from those beliefs, which for me was a big stinking deal because my whole theological system was against that that I had been brought up in. So in, with the idea that Bemney said of the orientation, disorientation, reorientation, that's, that's kind of what happened for me, too, in that for 30 years, I was climbing up the side of the mountain with this Jesus that I'm following, okay? And thinking, this stinks, man. Y'all might like to climb mountains in here. I don't. <laughs> I don't hike. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, this climb up the mountain sweaty, hot, stinky, painful, turn your ankle, stub your toe, all of these things, like, what the heck? Why are you leading me this way? This stinks. And I'm with you, I'm following you, I'm doing everything I think I'm supposed to be doing, and yet there is this brutal pain that's going on. I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for the, whatever, the big cross and stepping on enemies. But... At the top of the mountain, which ironically, as things tend to be in the kingdom, was my very bottom, this Jesus that I had walked up with completely transfigured before me. In the midst of that experience and engaging the process and sitting and thinking and allowing him to work and to show me different things about himself, he was utterly transfigured. I'd known him for 30 years, I thought, and yet... Here we are, and he is so much more than I could have ever hoped or dreamed or imagined. It, it, it was an astonishing change. And 
What's funny is you end up going back down the mountain. Nothing has changed. You're still on the mountain. Jesus looks the same now that he's not transfigured anymore, but I was completely changed. Now I can see, oh, look at this view. I'm seeing the same things I saw on the way up, but now the perspective is completely different because Jesus was transfigured. He became, to me, more than I ever thought that he was. Um, and it was, it was, again, just another way of encountering freedom. And the reason that that was able to happen uh, because instead of trying to find a place, I mean, my pain, then the pathological way of dealing with it, forgive me, I sometimes use analogies that probably are a little too much, but oh well. The pain to me, I was like a dog circling it, circling it, trying to find a place to pee on it so that I could assert dominance, I could understand it, I could figure it out. And the belief was, if I figure it out then it won't hurt anymore. If I figure out why this is happening, it will take the pain away. And that's not the way it works. It didn't happen. And so, but what happened, I stopped focusing on that emotion that was just destroying me, and I started pressing into God himself. For me, those two things had to be mutually exclusive because I kept trying to bring him into this pain, fix it, fix it. And that, that's not how it worked. I pursued him, and then I could see this whole steaming pile of gooky hurt from a completely different place. And I, and I, I didn't have to circle it anymore. Does that make sense at all? Okay. Um, so in that kind of view of thinking about pain. I'm going to read a story that we're probably pretty familiar with from the Old Testament, but it's Numbers 21, 4 to 9. And I don't, clearly, I don't have slides, so I'll just read it. Um, so Israel has left Egypt, and they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Is this the right one? Uh, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against Yahweh and against you. Pray that Yahweh will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So the people asked Moses to ask God to take the snakes away. And that's not what he did. So, his remedy did not preclude pain. It did not stop the pain from happening. 
but it redirected the people's vision in the midst of their pain. Does that make sense? And I find it interesting in this story that their death came by being bitten by snakes, which is sort of like the garden all over again, just like our death comes because of sin. So the means of healing, the bronze snake on a pole, didn't move and come to them. They looked to it where it was. Let's see, is this right? Yeah. Their means of healing in the Old Testament um, was a thing. It was a thing external to them. It still in, in needed faith. They had to look at the pole and believe that it would heal them. But it was external to them. Jesus said in John, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. So like Bemney said, in this life we will experience loss, but we find eternal life in the midst of the loss and grief when we gaze, and I'm going to say, inwardly at the lifted up on the cross, murdered and resurrected Christ who dwells within us. Colossians 1.27, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit has been given as a deposit. He, we say these words too. He lives in me. But how much time do we spend thinking about what that means and what that does? He's not external to us like the bronze snake was to them. But when we find ourselves in pain, we can look to the Christ within and find what we need. I don't mean look in at ourselves. That's what I did for all those years. I'm trying to drum up whatever it's going to take to conquer this pain. I'm talking about becoming aware of the infinite, ever-living God who has chosen to dwell in each one of us. If we have awareness of that, what do we lack? If the infinite, ever-creative, ever-living, ever-loving God who is life has deposited himself in his fullness in Christ within us, what, what do we not have? I mean, we may not have a new car. We may not have a car at all. We may not have food at all, but God is either good or he's not. And there are people every day that don't have enough of what they need to survive on this earth. He asks us to meet those needs. But the truth is, God himself is living in us. Do we think about that? Do we think about what that means? That in the midst of, of having been bitten by the snake, of having been bitten by sin, of having... The reality of knowing that this flesh will return to dust, that it, it doesn't matter. It's impossible for us to die because just as the Son of Man has been lifted up, we come to him to find eternal life. And that eternal life sits with us as we grieve because unlike what I was taught, in, that, in my former theological way, Jesus did not weep at the tomb of Lazarus because of people's unbelief. 
He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, I believe, because he was standing before, this is what sin does to my beloved. This is not natural. This is not the design that God had in mind. He never had death on his mind as the original plan. We were supposed to live in the garden, be able to eat of the tree of life, and live with God forever. So for Jesus to stand outside the tomb of his beloved friend, you know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, those are the only people in Scripture it says Jesus loved. Isn't that interesting? Some people think the beloved disciple was actually Lazarus and not John, some scholars. That's a whole other talk for another day. But he loved Lazarus. That, that has echoes for us. He loves us. We are his beloved, and he wept at the tomb of Lazarus because death is the result of sin, of a broken world that God never intended. God is life. He is life. And so Jesus wept. He grieved. He understands the pain of loss. He will weep with us. But like Bemney said, good can come from something horrible, but it's not because of the something horrible. Jesus can bring forth life from death. Death doesn't scare him. And I'm not talking about just physical death. Any kind of loss, if we are engaging in it with Christ, he can redeem. It's what he does. He's in the redemption business. So all of this for me, living with that kind of awareness, do you still hurt? Yes. But it's not the same kind of hurting. This to me is to say we don't grieve like those with no hope. This is the hope that we have, that the God who is life can bring life from death, any death. Does that make sense? So back to the, the serpent on the pole. When we shift our focus from the snake, from the thing that hurt us, from the pain that is bitten us from what's consuming us, when we shift our focus to Christ, who dwells within, that shifting of focus is prayer. I think a lot of us maybe have kind of a narrow view of what prayer might be, but when we're putting our focus and attention on God, that, that is a way of praying. It's also, when we're in pain and we turn to focus on God, that's also a way of lamenting. That is the space that we have where we can go to the lament psalms. We can pour out our hearts before God. This hurts. The snake still bit me. <laughs> it still hurts, but I can pour out my heart to you as I put my focus on you. As I'm looking at the cure that dwells within me, that it still hurts, but I can sit with you in the midst of this lament, knowing that life will come. Yeah, so the hope is in encountering Christ in the midst of loss. So Richard Foster, uh, he's a big formation guy, if y'all are familiar with Christian formation, says the primary purpose of prayer is to bring us into a life of communion with the Father, into such a life of communion with the Father that we are conformed into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. We are inwardly taken over, changed, and transformed. 
So when we sing the song from the inside out, that's what this is talking about. We are inwardly taken over in our inner being by the God who dwells within. As we say yes, he won't take us over without us inviting him. But that's where we're taken over. And then we more organically become like Christ. Was Christ a man of sorrows? Yes. Was he also joyful? I think not joyful like we think of joyful, but I think that undergirding his identity was a knowledge of the goodness and the love of God. And so even in the midst of his sorrows, looking at what sin was doing, all of that was being undone in himself. Life was coming in himself. So we're healed from the inside out. So there is triumph in Christ. There is victory in Jesus. But his triumph came through horrific suffering. We read in scripture, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, not by spiritual warfare. Please hear me, I'm not dissing spiritual warfare, but I am saying that he triumphed over them by the cross. And then the book of Revelation, that was in Colossians 2, by the way. In Revelation, one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. And then I saw a snarling lion who with spiritual warfare slashed all of the enemies. Is that what it says? No, it says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne. That's the triumph. It came through having Jesus having been slain. And then another one in Revelation, they triumphed over the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not, meaning us, the church, did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So we've got blood of the lamb and death. But I think it's the kind of death that I had in that cave. It was a death to everything I thought I needed to live when all I needed was already right there with me, behind me. I think a lot of times we look this way, Jesus, come fix this problem, come fix this problem. And he's already there behind us. We just don't know it. And I think that that is where we exercise faith in the midst of grief and suffering. With Again, faith, we can't see him. He is in the blackness behind us, if you will. But am I going to continue thinking what I need to live is out here, or am I going to turn around in the midst of my pain and terror, all of it? So what did I say? That's the irony of the kingdom and the mysterious way, right? That's what Paul said about in Colossians. This mystery, this mystery that has been concealed, I'm now, I now reveal to you, and the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a thing that it's, we'll probably, well, we won't. We won't understand it. We accept it by faith, but it is the mysterious way of the kingdom. We win by losing, we live by dying. It's very upside down. And that's Okay. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> so 
And this is, it's something that we'll deal with the rest of the time we're on this side of the dirt because we are human. We have been bitten by the snake. We are in a process of being healed. And so even though I had this big, almost like a second conversion experience, this big thing that happened for me in that kind of imaginary cave scene, there are times still when something will hurt and I find myself under that pain and hear myself praying, God, come take this away. God, help me. And this happened recently in a relational difficulty that I'm having. And it's hurtful. And I found myself praying, God, help me. Help me, like, know what to do. Help me know what to say. Help me to know how to fix this situation so that I don't hurt anymore, is basically what I was praying. And there was no peace. There was no peace in that. And again, I felt like I was wrestling, wrestling for no reason, because it wasn't getting anywhere. And by God's grace, I was able to say, oh, I'm doing the thing. I'm doing the thing where I want him to come fix it and take my pain away. And so for the first time ever, I prayed this prayer, and this is when I found peace. I said, God, help me suffer well. And that made all the difference because I didn't have to try to stop feeling what I was feeling. But God is with me in it. And if God is with me in the suffering, he will help me suffer well. I will still be able to love this person that I'm having that's causing all this angst and causing all this underlying pain. But if I think that pain and, and grief has to be gone before I can love, well, I'll never love them well. And nothing will ever change. But this prayer has made a huge difference for me. God, help me suffer well. Again, if I look to Christ within and see him inwardly on the cross, he suffered well. He didn't lash out at anybody. He suffered well. He lives within me. He will enable me as I say yes in faith to suffer well. Does that make sense? Again, it's not easy. It's not fun. We want the wave, the magic wand, and all the pain goes away. And unfortunately, I was brought up that that's basically how God worked. If I say the magical incantation with the right words of faith, he will come, and it will magically change. And that's just not how it works. That's what, that's what the, all the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted to happen when Jesus was on the cross. If he's the son of God, let God come save him now. Let God come wave a magic wand and bring him down off the cross. Then we'll believe. And that's not the way it works. We find life through death. We find victory by losing. Yay! You're welcome. So I'll finish with this. That's interesting. Somehow, somehow, it's a mystery. Paul says, if I participate, if I, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow 
attaining to the resurrection of the dead. It's Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. The participation of his sufferings, the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So somehow all suffering, all of our suffering and grief and loss can be a participation in his sufferings. Somehow this suffering serves to bring us to a death that allows us to rise with him from the dead. It's a mystery, but somehow it works. It allows us to find life, to find Jesus, the one who is the life. And this is a saying that we hear a lot, but I think there's a second half to it. We hear all the time, God has a plan for you. God has a plan for your life. Jesus has a plan for you. What we don't hear is that the plan he has for us is himself. The plan he has for us is himself. And if that's the case, what else do we need? I don't, I personally don't think that God is as concerned about where we live or what job we take or those kinds of things that we tend to ask him for guidance about. He wants us to say yes to himself. And when we do that, we can be aware that as we suffer, as we grieve, as we face loss, we are still filled with eternal life. We are filled with eternal light. We are filled with, let's name them, shall we? Did we sing the song as children? The fruit of the Spirit? We're filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because he is those things, and he dwells within we don't have to try to do those things. We say yes. We say yes to those things that already dwell within us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we are raised with him from the dead. Bemney was extremely practical in how to deal with suffering and loss. This is more kind of esoteric, but to me the two together make a pretty good one-two punch. So he has, there's a basket on the table back there that has Bemney's PowerPoint that has a lot, you know, some more practical things in how to navigate loss and grief. Um, but also with that is the unshakable, eternal, infinite truth of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen? All right, that's all I got. <laughs> Do, uh, are there any questions? Anything? Yeah, so the question was, um, where is there a place for making a decision to look at life properly, e even in the midst of grief? And so, yeah, that, that is the part of the... And everybody's different, right? Some people are more left-brained, right-brained, personality, Enneagram... <laughs> Whatever you want to say, we all bring different stuff to the table. And so for me, for 10 years, I dealt with 
I circled around this one issue, and I can't tell you how many times I made that decision to look at life differently. But, and you know, and I suppose a physical analogy might work. If there's a, an abrasion, there's natural healing that takes place that you don't have to doctor a whole lot. You know what I mean? It just kind of happens. And so there is loss and grief where that kind of thing does happen. You know, graduating from elementary school to middle school, that's going to heal. <laughs> you know, there's not a whole lot of introspection and inner work that has to be done around that kind of thing. But if something is deep enough, and especially if it touches on a place of our own core woundedness, then that's going to take some work. And I don't know, some people might be able to look at that and say, you know what, I'm, just, I'm going to choose to believe the right thing. And as they make that choice, things kind of heal from the inside out. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about that in Mere Christianity. He said something about, uh, so here's Brian, who's a Texas Aggie. And um, I, I don't love him. But if I start acting as if I love him and treating him as if I love him, eventually my feelings will come around and I will love him. C.S. Lewis says that in Mere Christianity. That's the whole fake it till you make it kind of approach. For some people that works and it becomes a legitimate love toward that person or a legitimate healing and moving past grief. But for other people it doesn't. And so it's hard to put an expectation on someone else to say, come on now, it's been long enough. You need to make the right decision. So a question for them might be, what, what, is, what, is, what is keeping you from being able to get past this? What is happening that this is such an issue? It's, yeah. I can't, I can't even tell you how many times I made the decision, and the next day I'd be circling it again. And I'd make the decision again. And then I'd be circling it again. So for me, it was a different process. I mean, I, I'll t I tried. <laughs> I really tried hard to talk myself into not hurting. It didn't work for me. Does that answer your question a little bit? I'm not sure there's an answer. Uh, yeah, I don't think there is. I think there's probably as many answers as there are individual people. And so I love the whole golden rule thing. I mean, Jesus said it. <laughs> but sometimes the way I would like to be treated is not how someone else is not the most healthy thing for someone else. And so, yeah. But again, part of the answer, I think, is turning to Christ within. As I'm engaging this grief, or even engaging trying to help someone else, if I'm saying yes to Jesus in me, he is going to know what's causing me from getting over a grief or pain, and he's also gonna know what the other person needs. And so that, to me, that's the praying without ceasing, Jesus. You're in me. How do I love this person right now? How do I engage this person in their process right now? You know. And so I say yes to him within. Again, it's a little esoteric. <laughs> anything, anything else? Comments? Questions? Concerns? I mean, it's fine <laughs> if you have concerns. Okay, so the, the question was, drawing a parallel from the emotionally healthy spirituality class that is being taught by New Life Downtown right now, where the author talks about hitting a wall 
and then also referred to in, uh, in well, 500 years ago, Christianity as going through what was called the dark night of the soul. And so, now I forgot the end of the question. What keeps, so some people can hit up against the wall and get past it, and other, people's, other people keep hitting the same wall and can't. To me, that, that's a very similar question, actually, to what was asked down here. And I really, I, I do believe that some parts of the spiritual life, just like the physical life, are developmental. You know, you're, a two-year-old can't do calculus. And I think that there are parts of the Christian life, and God is absolutely fine with it. That's the part I didn't understand. I thought he demanded that we all have faith and we all be victorious all the time, and that's where we needed to get to. If we weren't there, then he was like, oh, come on, you're kidding me. You're not there yet? And realizing, no, that that's not the case. I, I, well, it didn't matter. I didn't have a slideshow anyway. I have a picture of my son and his son. And he's holding him, and his son, he's 10 months old. His son has got a hold of his, my, my son's shirt like this, his daddy's shirt like this. And I thought, isn't that just the very picture of my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me? It was just the very picture. And I almost wanted to use that, but it... Not everybody at the same stage of life is going to understand that scripture or engage it the same way. I think the sooner the better that people can realize, oh, I'm butting up against a wall. And the best way for me to stop giving myself bruises on my head is to find out, God, why is this a wall for me? What is happening here? And so, and a lot of times people aren't given permission to do that. At least that's been my experience. I don't, what, so if in general in church, in the evangelical Western American church, has anybody really been taught or been given permission to do internal work, to look inside at our own issues? That's probably not a fair question. I'm just trying to figure out how to, to address if people believe, and they believe it's God's will, that they be victorious and conquer a problem, then they're going to keep trying. And, and some people will be able to put enough Band-Aids on to keep functioning. And some won't. Um, and so I do think it does come to a place of a type of of death, you die to that idea of trying to figure it out and say, okay, God, this is going to have to be you. I don't know. I don't know if that, again, I don't know if there's any one why. Some people can and some people can't. I know the, the invitation is always to God himself. The invitation is always to life. God is life. If he comes, he can't bring anything else. He brings himself. And again, to me, that a transcendent kind of life. Our bodies will die. So. But I hope I have this hair. Anything else?
Nope. Okay, well, thank you guys for being here. Thanks.